The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew 13. We have some baptisms that we're going to celebrate here in a short time, but we do want to open the word together first. Matthew chapter 13. Salvation is entirely free, but it will cost you everything. Those are not contradictory statements. On the one hand, salvation is an entirely free gift. There is nothing you can do to earn it. There is nothing you can do to purchase it or buy it or secure it through your own efforts. It is not by human merit. It is not by human works. It is all by grace, and it has all been accomplished fully and entirely by the Lord Jesus Christ, so that there's nothing left to pay. So it's an entirely free gift. On the other hand, salvation will cost you everything. It will cost you your life, your entire life. It will require your total commitment, your complete allegiance, your total surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. It will involve you forsaking everything in order to gain Christ. This is the cost. It involves a complete exchange of all that we are for all that he is. Salvation is an invitation to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and to surrender to him in obedience. And so it will cost you everything. It's a free gift, but it will cost you your life. And as we come to this next set of parables in Matthew chapter 13, we see this Reality, we see the preciousness of the kingdom and that it is worth giving up anything to gain it. We've been working our way through this chapter and we've been looking at these mystery parables, these parables of the mystery of the kingdom. And we've said it a number of times already when Jesus came, he offered the physical, literal, earthly kingdom that was promised in the Old Testament, but because he was rejected by his people, that kingdom has been put on hold. It is still coming someday. He will return, and when he returns, he will establish a literal throne and a literal earthly kingdom, but for now, it's been postponed. And so we're living in a mystery form of the kingdom, one not seen in the Old Testament in this inter-Advent age between his arrivals. And we've been exploring what this age is like. That's what these parables describe, this mystery form of the kingdom. We've looked at the first parable, the parable of soils, and we learned that there will be a variety of responses to the message of the kingdom. There will be many who reject it, and yet there will be some reflected in the good soil who receive it and bear much fruit and show that they belong to the king. 
In the parable of the wheat and the tares, we found that there will be citizens of the kingdom who dwell right alongside citizens of the evil one, the citizens of the devil himself, and that there will be a separation one day unto judgment and unto eternal blessing. Last week, we looked at the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven, which teach us that this kingdom is going to start very small, almost unnoticeable. And it's going to grow and it's going to spread and it's going to increase in its influence until it reaches the entire world, until it will hopefully, ultimately triumph and Christianity and Christ will win. But there's a question that remains. And the question is this. Of those who embrace the king and his message and the kingdom, what is it about the perspective of that that makes them want to enter into it? What is the perspective on the part of those who receive the king as it pertains to the kingdom? How do they regard it? What do those who enter into the kingdom think of it? What is it that makes someone want to forsake everything to gain Christ and his kingdom? What is it about this king? What is it about his message that causes people to want to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him? There's something about this kingdom that is so valuable that you'll exchange your life to get it. To make it a little bit more personal, if you're here today and you know and you love the Lord Jesus Christ, what was it that compelled you to come into his kingdom? Obviously, it's sovereign grace. Obviously, it is regeneration. Obviously, it is the work of the Spirit in your heart. But what is it? What compelled you to come? What did you come to understand that became irresistible to you about this kingdom? If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, what makes following Christ worth it? What makes it worth it? Why would people literally lose their life to gain Christ? And why should you do the same thing? Maybe you're here this morning and you're on the fence about Jesus. Maybe you're at that point where you're deciding whether you're going to follow him all in or whether you're going to go the other way. What is it that's so glorious and majestic about Christ that should garner your affections? This is what we come to learn this morning about the preciousness of the kingdom, its value, its worth, and the cost that you should be willing to pay in order to gain it. We come this morning to two parables. They're the parables of the hidden treasure and the costly pearl. And we're going to look at them together, much like we looked at the last two last week together, the mustard seed and the leaven, they went together. These two also go together. They have identical meanings, although the emphasis is slightly different in each one of them. They essentially communicate the same thing, and they both communicate the priceless riches of the kingdom, the incredible glory and majesty and magnificence of Christ 
and the priceless riches of all that is, belong to those who are him, his, and therefore a willingness to gladly part with anything to gain that. In other words, what these two parables describe is, is the appeal of the kingdom. It's draw upon us, it's value, it's worth. Now we're going to see it this morning in verses 44 to 46. Follow along as I read these three verses. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls, and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. I want you to notice that these two parables both begin the exact same way. The kingdom of heaven is like... He's drawing a comparison. He's using an earthly analogy to communicate to us something about the reality of the kingdom. He uses a treasure and he uses a pearl to communicate to us what this kingdom reality is like. And I want you to notice as well that he provides no interpretation of this, these parables. He did the parable of the soils. He did the parable of the tares. He explained those for the disciples. But the parables of the mustard seed and leaven and the parables that we look at today, he did not interpret. And I think by this point, the disciples understand what Jesus is doing. They discern his method now. They, they get the idea of where he's going. They, they caught on to his, his, his approach. And so they had a, a context for this now. And so it's likely that these parables didn't need interpretation because they would have understood them clearly now having realized what he's doing. However, having said that, because Jesus doesn't interpret this for us, it has caused some disagreement as to what the interpretation is. And so I want to give you, first of all, what I believe is the wrong interpretation, and then I want to give you what I believe might be the correct one. You have in this par these parables a buyer, a treasure, and a price paid. And some will look at this and they will say, well, this clearly must be Jesus, he's the buyer, and the treasure is the people, Israel, or the church, and the price is what he did on the cross to rescue sinners. And all of that is true theologically and biblically. All of that is a reality, and it's all true. I just don't think it's the meaning of this passage. But there are many who believe that Jesus is the buyer, the treasure is the church or Israel, and the price is his blood shed on the cross. Let me read one quote that supports or communicates this idea. In the parable of the treasure, this writer says, it was Jesus who sold all that he had in order to buy the treasure Israel and to purchase it with his own blood. The parable of the pearl emphasizes that the church has been made possible by the merchant who sold all that he had to secure the great pearl. So Christ, leaving the glory of heaven, made the supreme sacrifice of dying on the cross in order to make possible the formation of the church. In this view, Christ is the buyer. 
the treasure are people, and the price is his sacrifice. And as, as I said, all that's true biblically. But I'm not sure that's what the view of this passage is. I'm not sure that's the correct interpretation because Christ didn't stumble across Israel. Nor, nor was he discovering the church after a long time of searching for it, nor did Christ purchase people because they were rare treasures that were so worthy of his sacrifice. So I don't think that's the meaning of this passage. I, I believe what Jesus is communicating here is that the buyers are sinners. And the treasure is the kingdom. And the price paid to gain it is us forsaking everything in order to gain Christ. And I think this fits with the context. Because what we've seen is there's going to be multiple responses to the king's message. There will be many who reject it, but there will be some who receive it. And what is it about the kingdom that makes some receive it? Some see the value of the kingdom. Some see the, the glory and the magnificence of the kingdom, and they're willing to part with anything and everything to gain it. And so I believe Jesus is describing for us the positive response to the kingdom. What is it, though, about the king and his message and the kingdom that makes it so attractive? I'm going to give you two points this morning, kind of similar to what we've seen the last few weeks. The parables explained and the parables applied. The parables explained and the parables applied. Let me give you the explanation of these two parables, and then we're going to look at some implications of them. So point number one is the parables explained. We're going to look, first of all, at the parable of the treasure. Notice verse 44 again. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Isn't this something we all dream of? Finding buried treasure? It just never happens. But, by the way, if you do find some, we'll take some for our building fund. <laughs> this man actually finds buried treasure. You say, how in the world is there actually buried treasure? This sounds so strange to our modern ears that people would actually bury treasure. But you need to know it's very common in that day because there were no banks, no credit unions. You didn't go through the drive-thru at LMCU and give them your paycheck and they could deposit that and keep that safe for you. There were no safe deposit boxes in that day. No place where money or valuables could be kept secure, and so if you wanted to keep something secure, you buried it where no one knew it was, so you could return later and find it digging up, and it was still yours. There is an example of this in another place in Scripture, Matthew 25, the parable of the talents. Remember, Jesus talks about a story of a man who's entrusted five talents and another man who's entrusted two talents and one who's entrusted one talent. Matthew 25, verse 18 says, He who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. And explaining that, verse 25 of Matthew 25, the man said, I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. 
In that day, there were wars. And he didn't want foreign soldiers come and stealing your stuff. So you'd bury it. But sometimes you're killed in the war. There were other people who went on long journeys and couldn't take their valuables with them, and so they would bury it, and some of those people didn't return from a long journey. And so there were occasions where the owners of the treasure would die and not come back and claim their treasure. And someone later might find it. That's what you have here. We don't know his situation. Perhaps he was a worker in the field or perhaps he was just walking by and he sees it sticking out of the ground because the rains washed some of the dirt away. We don't know why, but he stumbles upon it. He wasn't looking for it, but he finds it. And that day, the law was finders keepers. If you found it, you got to keep it. However, if it was found in someone's field who owned the field, there might be a dispute. Listen to Leon Morris explain this. He says, when anyone found treasure like this, the legal position appears to have been that the finder was entitled to keep it. But acquiring legal title to such a find was not always straightforward. If the finder was an employee, his employer could argue that he was acting as his agent, especially if the employer happened to own the land where the find was made. And if he was his employer's agent in lifting the treasure, then the treasure belonged to the employer. This was the reason the man hid the treasure instead of lifting it straight away. And if he lifted it before the field was his, it might be argued that when he did this, the lifting, he was acting as the owner's agent. But by buying the land before lifting the treasure, he removed all possibility of dispute. So the man finds the treasure. And he hides it immediately back in the ground. And it says in verse 44 that he goes and he sells all that he has to buy the field. Some have suggested at this point that this was not a very honest thing for the man to do, to buy a field that he knew had hidden treasure in it. But what is missed in that accusation is that clearly the owner did not know that there was treasure there because if he had, he would have sold before selling the land. He would have got the treasure out. He clearly has no idea, which clearly shows that it belonged to a previous landowner who is now deceased. So there's nothing unethical whatsoever about this man buying a field which he knew had buried treasure in it. It actually shows the man's integrity because he could have dug it out, walked away, and no one would have known, and he could have stolen it. Not stolen it, but he could have told it, done it without telling anybody. In this case, he doesn't do that. He removes all doubt about the rights to the treasure, and he buys the field so that he clearly owns it. There's one other thing I want you to notice in verse 44. Why did he do this? It says he did it for joy over it. What would compel a man to sell everything he has to buy a field with the treasure in it? Joy. True joy. Lasting joy. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. 
That's the parable of the hidden treasure. And you can see it is a pretty straightforward story. Its point is that there is a treasure that is worth parting with everything you own in order to gain it. The second parable is essentially like that, except it has one slight difference. Notice verses 45 and 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Pretty similar story. It's it's essentially the same point, but there's one slight difference in emphasis. In the first parable, the man was not seeking the treasure. He stumbled upon it. But not in this parable. This parable, the man is seeking it. He is looking for it. He is on an all-out search. Verse 45 says he's a merchant seeking fine pearls. He's a wholesale dealer. He's in the pearl business. And he travels the world looking for exquisite jewels in order to sell to retailers. This is how he makes his living. He buys and sells fine pearls. And as you can imagine, they were very valuable in that day. Today we have synthetic pearls. They didn't have synthetic pearls in that day. You had to get them the natural way. You had to go find them. In the bottom of the Persian Gulf or the Indian Ocean, you know how pearls are formed. There's a little irritation, usually sand, that gets into an oyster. And that oyster puts a protective layer around it to soften, as it were, the hard edges of that irritation. Quite rare and therefore quite valuable. Scripture often uses pearls to speak of something very valuable. Look back on chapter 7. Turn back just a couple pages. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 6. Matthew 7, verse 6. We've already seen a pearl used as an illustration. Verse 6, Jesus says, Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. He's contrasting the lowest unclean animal with the most prized and valuable jewel known to them. Go back to Matthew 13. Paul also uses pearls. He speaks of those who braided their hair with them. First Timothy chapter 2 Verse 9, Paul says, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments. These were things that the average person could not afford. They were for rich people. Pearls were valuable. Revelation 21 speaks of 12 gates made of 12 pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. You know the new heavens, new earth, the capital city, the new Jerusalem is going to have 12 pearly gates, each made of a single pearl. 
This man was seeking for the best of the best. And for year after year and decade after decade, this man was on the look out for the best pearl and he finally finds it. He calls it the pearl of great value. The word great value, palutimos, is the same word used in Matthew 26 of the vial of very costly perfume that the woman poured on the head of Jesus as he reclined at the table. It's something that's very costly, it's very expensive, it's very valuable, and this man finds it. It's magnificent, it's lustrous, it's, it's beautiful, it's exquisite. This is what he's been looking for all of his life. A single, priceless, pearl. It's the finest one he's ever seen. And he has to have it. So like the first man, he goes and sells everything he has. And he buys this one single jewel. The point of the parable is the same as the first one. The treasure is worth the price. So these are the parables. What do they mean? What is their point? What are the implications, the the applications? What are the principles that, that we are to derive from these two parables as it relates to the mystery form of the kingdom in which we are living? I want to give you three of them. Point number two is the parables applied, and we're going to look at three implications that come from these two parables. First one, letter A, is the kingdom is of immeasurable value. The first thing Jesus wants us to understand about this is that the kingdom, all that he is and all that he represents is of immense, immeasurable value. That, that's what the treasure represents. That's what the pearl represents. It is a, a, an illustration, a picture of the kingdom of Christ. And he wants us to understand that it is rich beyond comparison. It is more valuable than anything in this world. It has more worth than anything you can fathom. More valuable than anything in your life is this kingdom. Listen carefully. More important than any money you have. More important than any possession you own. More important than any prestige you can garner more important than any accomplishment that you can achieve is something spiritual. There is nothing more valuable in this life than Christ and all that he stands for. For a moment, just just think about this. The Savior of the world has offered himself to us. And with that, the privilege and the joy of belonging to God and being adopted into his family and, and knowing his son and having your sins forgiving and having your secure future 
And all the promises that are made in the scriptures to us are are ours. And we have the word of God to guide us and direct us. And we have the spirit of God to comfort us and care for us and teach us. And we have eternal life and unending blessing and all of these privileges and joy that begin in this life and spill over into the next life. How in the world could you compare anything else to that? It is more precious than anything you could possess. In fact, I want you to right now think about what are the things that you value? What are the things that you put your confidence in? What are the things that have worth to you? I promise you Christ and everything he offers is far superior to any of that. But here's what's so sad. Its richness eludes most people. Just like the treasure was hidden in the field and few, if any, none for the most part understood it was there. None could see it was there until someone stumbled upon it. So is the preciousness and the value of the kingdom of God. For the most part, people are going through this life without any interest in this valuable kingdom. You know this as you engage people in this lost world and you speak with them about Christ and you engage them on the spiritual plane and you talk to them about the gospel and you point them to the Savior and you show them the value of knowing Christ and being known by him, at best you meet with indifference and at worst you meet with hostility so many times. Because they don't see the value of the kingdom. 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross is foolishness. Moria, where we get our word moronic, to those who are perishing. 1 Corinthians 2.14, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness, moria, to him. And so for the most part, as you walk through this world and as you engage people in this world and you talk about spiritual things with the world, you're going to meet with people who largely don't see the value of all of this. They don't comprehend its worth. They don't understand how precious a treasure it is. It has no value whatsoever to them. They walk away. They continue in their spiritual poverty. And I promise you, this is the height of folly. Who in their right mind finds a treasure and walks away and says, eh, But this is what most people do. In his inimitable way, C.S. Lewis captured this in his famous statement. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. Is this not what most people do? There's an offer for a holiday at a sea, and yet we'd rather go on making mud pies in the slums. I hope this isn't you. I hope you're not here this morning 
and you're being confronted with the value of the kingdom and the king and the joy and the blessings that go with all of it, and you're indifferent or hostile to it. I hope it's not you. You are missing the most valuable thing in the universe. And when you come to Christ, then you begin to see the immeasurable value of this kingdom. And you begin to see it in all of its worth. So the psalmist in Psalm 19.10 can say of the commandments of God, they are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, and sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. And you can say with the psalmist in Psalm 84.10, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. And you can say with the psalmist in Psalm 119, 127, I love your commandments above gold. Yes, above fine gold. You see, when the Lord begins to work in your heart, and the Lord begins to shine the light of the gospel of regenerating grace inside and begins to do a work in you and opens your eyes and removes the stoppers from your deaf ears, suddenly you see the beauty of this kingdom. And he summons you and he draws you and he irresistibly brings you to himself, not kicking and screaming because now you see it and you want it. And you see it for what it is. Leon Morris says, it may not appear to be riches from the world's point of view, but membership in the kingdom has superlative value. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the kingdom and the king and his message and the truth and these spiritual realities are of superlative value? Or have you been confronted with these realities, stiff-armed the person or the Lord who's brought them to you? Let me ask it this way. Does your life reflect an understanding of the value of the kingdom? If you were to evaluate your life, if you were to look at your priorities, if, if someone were to evaluate what you're living for, what you're loving, what you're standing for, what you're talking about, what comes out of your mouth, what, what you spend your money on, what you spend your time on, if you were to evaluate your life, what would they say is your greatest treasure? If it's not Christ and his kingdom, you're missing something. Nothing is more valuable than Christ and salvation and truth and eternity. That's the first implication. Secondly, letter B, no price is too great to obtain it. No price is too great to obtain it. As I said to you, the, the principles uh, or the, the explanation of these parables is essentially the same, but there's a slightly different emphasis. In, in the first case, the man is not looking for it and stumbles upon it. In the second case, the man is looking for the treasure and he finds it. But in either case, the reaction is the same. Once they see its value, 
They're willing to sacrifice anything to have it. Jesus clearly is not teaching here that you can buy your way into the kingdom. You can't pay enough money to get in, but what he is saying is that the kingdom is so valuable that you're willing to lose anything to gain it because it's that precious and it's that costly and it's that valuable. You'll give up anything you you prize. You'll give up anything you treasure because you realize that everything you have in this life is nothing compared to the value of the kingdom. And so you're willing to count the cost. You're willing to pay the price if necessary. And it doesn't mean that you're going to have to give up all your possessions. And it doesn't mean you're going to have to physically lose your life. But it does mean that in your heart, there is this passion for Christ and all that he stands for and a willingness to part with anything if it means gaining him. This is what the disciples began to understand back in Matthew chapter 4 in their calling. It says, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. I don't think they fully understood everything at that point, but clearly they understood the worth and the value of Christ to some degree. Matthew chapter 8, verses 19 to 23, a scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He's talking about cost. Verse 21 of Matthew 8, another of his disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. He says, You count the cost. Don't wait for your inheritance. You count the cost and you come follow me. Turn over to Matthew 16. You're almost there. Turn a couple pages to the right. Matthew 16, verse 25. Starting verse 24, he's talking here about the cost of true discipleship. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. There's the cost, beloved. It's going to cost you your life. You deny yourself. You take up your cross, and you follow Christ no matter what the cost is. Notice verse 25. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains his whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What price have you put on your soul? Are you willing to lose everything if necessary? Are you willing to lose everything in this world if it might mean to gain Christ. Turn to one other passage, Luke chapter 14. Turn over, just, I want you to see this. Luke chapter 14, here's one other text where Jesus speaks of the cost of genuine discipleship. Luke chapter 14, verse 25 It says, large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, 
If anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. There's the cost. Verse 27, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Then verse 33, so then none of you who can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Three times in that short little passage, Jesus delineates the true cost of discipleship. It will cost you everything. Go back to Matthew 13. This, this is what Jesus is talking about. It's free. Free gift. But it will cost you your life. It will cost you everything. And some people find it as they stumble upon it. And some people are searching all their life. But the response to those who enter the kingdom is always the same. I'll pay the price. If I get that. Think about Paul on the road to Damascus. I promise you, he was not looking for salvation. He was on the way to murder Christians. He was going to do what he thought he needed to do for God. And on his way to Damascus, he is arrested by blinding light. And he sees the glory of the risen Christ. And in an instant, he sees what he's doing. And he sees the majesty of the king. And in a moment, he gives it all up. You say, how do you know? Because he told us in his testimony. Philippians 3, 7 and 8, for whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ. There's some people that come to Christ into the kingdom like this. They're going about their ways. They're living their own life. They are not seeking Christ in the least, and suddenly they stumble upon this valuable treasure because of the sovereign grace of God in their hearts. And they're irresistibly drawn to it. And they'll pay whatever price is necessary. On the other hand, there are people who spend decades searching and searching and searching. And they try this religion. They try that religion. They try a little new age. They try a little self-help. They do a little bit of the worldly things. Trying to find answers to their questions. And they search, and they search, and they search, and they search. And when God chooses to do a work in that person's heart, and the blinders are removed, suddenly they find the real thing and they see the value of it and they part with anything and everything in order to gain it. I have heard of so many testimonies like that. I was looking and I was looking and I was looking and I couldn't find it until I heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
This is what true believers do. This is the nature of saving faith. They're glad to give it all up to gain Christ. One writer says it this way, wise investors would not usually put all their money into a single investment. But that is exactly what both men in these parables did. The first man sold everything and bought one field, and the second man sold everything and bought one pearl. But they had counted the cost, and they knew what they were buying was worthy of the ultimate investment. That is a picture of true saving faith. Someone who truly believes in Christ does not hedge their bets. Having counted the cost, the true believer gladly gives everything for Christ. Have you? Jim Elliott said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You say, well, I'll have to give this up. I have to give that up. But you don't understand. You're not giving anything up. You're gaining Christ. And when you gain Christ, everything you gave up looks like garbage. Third lesson, letter C, the kingdom is the source of true joy. The kingdom is of immeasurable wealth. It will cost you everything to gain it. Let us see. The kingdom is the source of true joy. Notice verse 44 again. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Beloved, what is the world looking for? This. This is what your friends are after. This is what your family's after who don't know Christ. This is what the people in your life who continue to reject the gospel are after. They want this. They want joy. They want happiness. And the more you seek it outside of Christ, the more dead ends you are going to hit. And yet when you see the kingdom and you see Christ and you see the gospel and you see the Lord and you see his truth for all that it is, you'll give it all up because in that instant you know that's where true joy is found. So it's not a chore. It's not difficult. And as you do that, joy floods your heart. As the waves of forgiveness wash over you, as the work of Christ accomplishes what it intended to accomplish, suddenly you know what you've always been looking for. You've found what you've wanted. And it's not by looking inside of yourself, it's by looking outside yourself to the Savior, the risen Savior. And when you experience that, you know you've found joy. So are you here this morning and are you looking for this joy? You will never find it outside of Christ. And I guarantee this, if you come to Christ, you will not ever regret it and you'll never go back with your treasure and say, I want my money back. And if you're here this morning and you know Christ, are you thanking God for this treasure? And are you thanking him for the work he's done to open your eyes to let you see the value of this treasure? And are you living your life for this king? 
It's easy to drift, friends. It's easy to lose our perspective. It's easy to have our eyes on the world and to try and find some modicum of joy in this broken planet. And as believers, this is a reminder to us where true joy is found. So church, let's love Christ. Let's value him as our greatest treasure for our good and his glory, amen? Lord, these are truths we need to hear so desperately. And I thank you for reminding them, us of them. Thank you for opening our eyes. Thank you for letting us see the value of the kingdom. And Lord, if there are any here this morning who are considering and contemplating this kingdom but are not sure they want to pay the price, Lord, open their eyes and soften their hearts and let them see it's no price at all. And for those of us who know you, Lord, let us relish in this work you've done for us. And may we continue living our life with this king and his message in the forefront of our eyes and hearts. It's in his name we pray. Amen. And we'll, would you please? You've been listening to Presented at Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.